Well, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is certainly not the longest psalm uh, in the songbook uh, that God has inspired, but it's a very, um, a very familiar one to many of us, at least some of the themes and the concepts here. It's, it's very striking in some of the language it uses. And as we consider here the Ninth Commandment, Psalm 15 is a very good place to start. So I'll begin reading at Psalm 15 and starting in verse 1. Uh, down through verse 5. Psalm 15, starting in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, But who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and pray for his help this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 15, for your word as a whole that teaches us what your will is for us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us and help us to understand the things that he has inspired all these thousands of years ago, to see what your will is for us, even as we consider how we speak and how we are to understand the truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are perhaps visiting with us, we have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism as it's structured according to 52 Lord's Days. We've been going through it consecutively, and we've been in the Ten Commandments for a little while now, and we've come now to the Ninth Commandment, even as we heard it uh, earlier in the reading of the Law of God, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as I was considering where exactly to turn in Scripture to think about these things, because there are many different places that we could have gone, Psalm 15 is one of those things that just kept coming into my mind, just kept striking me as I considered it. Psalm 15 is what some would call an entrance liturgy. And the picture is of a worshiper coming to worship at God's, in this case, special tent, his tabernacle, his place of special presence in the midst of his people. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was this idea of a priest would be there and the worshiper would come and the worshiper would basically ask the question, what is the requirement, what are the requirements in order to enter into this place, to enter into worship with this God? And depending on whatever religion, whatever false religion of the time uh, would be, the requirements would be slightly different. Well, here we see this has been taken up into the worship of God. It's coming into worship, not just in general, but coming into God's special presence. And so it's this picture of a worshiper coming and asking the priest, essentially, what must I be? Who must I be? What kind of person must I be in order to come into God's presence, in order to come into his tents? and to worship, and to sojourn, to dwell there. And it's interesting as we get into verses 2 through 5, as the requirements come to light, that it's perhaps not exactly what we would expect as we read some parts of the Old Testament. We know, of course, don't we, that there are many ceremonies, there are many rituals that happen in the worship of ancient Israel that God had prescribed for his covenant people. That there are many washings and ceremonies and sacrifices and all these various things. And in a sense, really, it would be easy if that was what the requirements were. If the requirements were to wash yourself, to make yourself clean ceremonially, to bring an offering, to do certain things in a certain order. But what we find here in Psalm 15 is that these requirements are actually moral requirements. 
the requirements having to do with who a person is. Basically, what this man or woman who's coming says is the same as what this man or woman is. It's this idea of truth that really comes to the fore in Psalm 15. And perhaps that's something that is somewhat uncomfortable for us as we recognize the lies that are still present within us, even those of us who are in Jesus Christ, who have been made new by the Spirit, recognize that we have often failed to keep the commandment of not bearing false witness against our neighbor. And so let's turn in our Forms and Prayers books, these little books that you see on the side in the middle of the pew, to Lord's Day 43, question and answer 112. You can find that on page 250. If you cannot get to one of these, you can also find it in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll be looking at question and answer 112. I will uh, state the question, and if you could respond with the answer. Lord's Day 43, Heidelberg, question 112. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid, under penalty of God's wrath, every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. Well, this is the summary of this commandment as we find it in our Heidelberg Catechism, something that we see all throughout Scripture, not just in Psalm 15, not just in Exodus 20. And so we'll consider three points, especially this morning, each of them coming in turn. And the first is the way of lying. It's how we break this commandment, what we are commanded not to do. As we consider this idea of not bearing false witness against our neighbor, we recognize immediately that that's not necessarily how we talk very often. We speak of things like lying and deceiving, but we don't often use the word bearing false witness unless it's somehow in reference to this commandment. And so we can ask exactly what is this meaning? What is this getting at? What was this uh, have meant to the people of Israel in Exodus 20 as they're hearing this for the first time as God has just written these things on these tablets with his own finger? Well, bearing false witness applies most directly to the courtroom, to justice. It's this idea of bearing witness in court. Now, of course, their courts, their laws would not have been the same as ours are today. There's similarities, but there are also differences. But it's this general idea of of being truthful in the law, of being truthful in the courts of justice. It's a recognition that societies cannot last long without the truth. That when truth goes away, that when false witnessing comes into the laws of a nation, into the courts of a nation, that chaos is never far behind. I remember God's people are brought forth as a covenant people at this point as a nation. That they are to dwell in this land, that they are to have their own specific rulers, their own specific not only moral law as it's unchanged throughout history, but also ceremonial laws having to do with worship and uh, civic laws, judicial laws having to do with the rule of the people of God. And so this would be a very important thing for them to remember. It's a very important thing for us to remember. Remember what happens in the Old Testament, boys and girls. Oftentimes, a charge is only heard if there are two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. And we can ask, why? Is that just something extra that God has thrown in just to make things a little bit more difficult for us? No. 
It shows a concern for the truth. A concern for the truth when bringing charges, when bringing accusations against someone. It's the same kind of thing that we find here in the idea of not bearing false witness against our neighbors. And of course we know that we can bear false witness by not telling the truth, perverting justice by not telling the truth. But there's an even more sinister way to pervert justice, isn't there? There's a way to pervert justice by twisting the truth. Not just explicitly denying what is true, but by using mostly what is true and then adding a little bit of falsity in with it. Just a little bit of a lie. And we think of what happened in the garden with Satan and with Eve, that there was very much this sense of bringing God's word into the situation, and yet you read exactly what is said, and we realize that's not what God said at all. There are specific changes, important changes that have happened, and before you know it, the truth is out the window, and you're not entirely sure what's true and what's false anymore. Twisting the truth is still something that we often can do. And it's true that most of us, at least, are not commonly in the practice of going into a court of law, of testifying, perhaps against or for our neighbor. But we know that twisting the truth is not something that is just limited to that, is it? That we can interpret things uncharitably. That we can hear someone, whether an opponent or someone we like, say something and twist it to mean what we want it to mean. Perhaps this has never been easier than in the time of social media. Someone will say something online, and before you know it, all these people are piling on, not understanding, not taking the time to consider what the statement actually was, just assuming the worst of someone, twisting the truth, and deciding to uncharitably judge the person and to interpret the person who had just said something. Or we can rush to judgment. That's been something that's been a problem ever since the beginning, but of course, now it seems to be even more obvious to us. Once again, with the aid of the internet. So you all, how often is it that you hear something that happens and you don't have all the facts, you don't have every side of the story, and you've automatically decided, oh, this is wrong and this is right. I do it all the time. A rush to judgment without seeking the facts. As Proverbs says, the first man who comes along seems right until the second man comes along. Rushing to judgment is something that's been a problem for quite some time. We think perhaps of Pilate's in the story of the crucifixion in the Gospels. He comes to Jesus, he asks these questions, and his, his question, his big question that we all remember probably, those of us who have read these accounts, is what is truth? And then, of course, he doesn't stay for the answer. He rushes to judgment. In fact, he knows that he is judging incorrectly. He knows that this is a righteous man, a perfect man, a spotless man who is sitting in front of him, who's standing there being accused of all these things, and yet he condemns them anyway. He is rushing to judgment. So we can break this commandment by bearing false witness or rashly judging. We can also falsify words and we can deceive. This is what we most commonly think of as the ninth commandment, of lying, of not telling the truth, of telling falsehoods. As we read the Old Testament, we see again and again that the prophets, as God's covenant lawyers, are coming to Israel and saying, you have not been speaking the truth. Especially often it's the case that they have not been speaking the truth about God. They've not been speaking the truth about their covenant Lord, but they've also not been speaking the truth about each other. They've not been speaking the truth about themselves, and the prophets come in again and again and again and tell them these things. We think of Isaiah chapter 33, starting in verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. 
Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him, his water will be sure. And there's that wonderful picture of the provision and the blessings of God that comes to the one who speaks the truth. We read the rest of Isaiah and we realize he is not speaking of most of Israel at this point. That most of Israel has earned God's condemnation and judgment because of the things that they have said, the lies that they have taken upon their lips. How uncomfortable is that for us as well? How often, even from our youngest days, do we tell lies? I remember being a young child and not really having a concept of what truth was in its full sense of what an actual lie of that caliber might be as far as bearing false witness in the court of law or anything like that, but telling little white lies even to my friends. Things that didn't matter, things that really were not important. And yet I could tell a lie and say, oh, I did this, or I scored this many points in a basketball game, or I made this many free throws in a row. And no one was there. It was just me. There were not two or three witnesses to verify this account. But even for such a thing, such a thing that we would classify as a white lie, I was bearing false witness. And that's something that doesn't, uh, we don't outgrow just naturally. That's something that has to be taken out of us by the Spirit of God, that we do deceive, we do falsify words, we twist words. We see God's perfect character in Scripture. He tells us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. He tells us true things, even when they're hard things for us to hear, even when we don't like them, but we often cave to pressure. We're often uh, satisfied to do the things that make us popular, that make us well-liked, even if it means lying and deceiving. But of course, we see someone else in Scripture who is presented as the epitome of what falsehood actually is, what lying and deceit actually is. We read Jesus saying that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And that sin itself lies to us. It does not tell us the truth. The devil and sin come to us and say, I can satisfy you. And deep down we know they can't. Yet how often do we take the bait? And so when we lie, when we deceive, when we falsify our words, we're doing the exact same things that the devil and sin do. We're not reflecting the character of our God. And we even backbite and slander, as some of the older translations of the Heidelberg would have it. That not only do we lie in the presence of someone, but we lie about that person behind their back. And we say scandalous things about them, that we're not concerned with our neighbor's reputation and good name not concerned with the honor of others, that we're false accusers at times. This who in Psalm 15, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the answer responding is a lot of different answers. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. This is an honest person who is being spoken of here. It's a person who is not breaking these uh, commandments about 
uh, lying, of bearing false witness, of slandering, of backbiting, of twisting words, of deceiving and falsifying words. So who can come into God's presence? Who can dwell in his tent? Who can worship him in his tabernacle? Well, the answer is not a liar. Someone who delights in and deals in the truth. And perhaps that raises an uncomfortable question for us, that what kind of person are we? Are we the kind of person that can honestly go to Psalm 15 and say, this describes me to a T? Well, no, we can't, can we? That we have often failed to keep this commandment. We know that unless Jesus comes soon, that we will again fail to keep this commandment, perhaps even today. And so we can ask, what hope is there? Is this a commandment? Is this something that is just left to leave us hanging here? Without any hope, without any comfort, without any idea that God will let us into his presence, well, we see our second point this morning, that Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the truth. That Jesus loved the truth. He didn't just pay lip service to it. But he actually spoke truly. He lived in a true way. He was not just speaking truly, but he was sure and trustworthy. We know that we have not perfectly met the requirements of Psalm 15. That left to ourselves, if we come to God's tent on our own, we cannot gain entrance. We will not be admitted. And yet one thing we find in Scripture is that these sorts of ideas, these sorts of requirements that are necessary to come into a holy God's presence are met for us in Jesus Christ and that we can come into God's presence through him. We haven't met the requirements, but one has. Jesus Christ has done all these things that are necessary to come into God's presence. He has lived a perfect life in the place of his people. He has obeyed God's law perfectly, including in the ninth commandment. And we must flee to him. That we cannot come to God expecting to be accepted based on our own trustworthiness, our own truth-telling, our own avoidance of lies, but only covered in his perfect righteousness. And that when he walks into God's tent, he brings us with him. The high priests in the Old Testament would have various things that they would wear. Some of what they wore was a representation of all the tribes of Israel. And so it's this picture, boys and girls, of this high priest in all these various robes and all these colorful stones on him, wearing a turban and a plate on his forehead saying, holy to the Lord, all these different things. But he basically brings the people into the tent when he goes in to minister. He brings God's people with him when he goes into the tabernacle. And that's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ loved the truth. He fulfilled the truth. He spoke the truth. He didn't shy away from it, even when it was unpopular. But he spoke the truth in all ways. He loved his neighbors enough to tell them the truth. He even loved his enemies enough to tell them the truth. He tells us the truth as well. Where sin and the devil come to us and lie to us and say, I can satisfy you, I can give you what you need, what you want, what you desire... Jesus Christ comes to us and tells us the truth that he actually is the only one who can satisfy us. He says something similar to this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was telling the truth when he said that. He was telling the truth at all times. Jesus Christ is the one who can satisfy us. Jesus Christ confessed the truth. 
He confessed that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He confessed that he is the only way. And so we can ask, what is God calling us to do as we consider this ninth commandment? Well, one thing he's calling us to do is not to rest in our own truth-telling. Not to rest in our own love for the truth, our own speaking of the truth, our own confessing of the truth, but to believe the gospel and to believe that Jesus loved and spoke and confessed truth, not just in general, but for you if you believe. That for all who trust in his name, he has met the requirements of Psalm 15. And so if this is the way of lying, this is what we're not supposed to do, although we recognize that within ourselves we do these things quite often. If this is Jesus, the one who has loved the truth, the one who is the truth, then how are we to respond? We believe the gospel. We've understood that we are sinners, that we have broken this commandment, that Christ has kept it for us. What are we to do now? What are we to do in the meantime? What brings us to our third point this morning, the way of truth, that we are to follow in Christ's footprints. That we are to obey the law in love and in truth, imperfectly, certainly, but sincerely, and to live as Christ has lived. As one commentator on Psalm 15 has said, the qualities that this psalm describes are those that God creates in a man, not those he finds in him. The qualities that God creates in a man, not those that he finds in him. Certainly Jesus Christ didn't come to save those who were doing pretty well. To save those who most of the time loved and spoke and confessed the truth and only sometimes slipped up with little white lies. No. Jesus Christ came for sinners. And part of the gospel is not just that we are accepted in God's sight, that we are allowed to be into his, come into his presence, that we are seen as if Christ's righteousness is ours itself, but that God by his Holy Spirit is actively changing us. He is changing us from those who lie, who bear false witness, who slander, who backbite, who twist words, to those who actually begin to love the truth. That we know God, we honor God in Jesus Christ. And one of the best ways we do this is with our lips. With what we say, with how we act. And we love the truth as a result. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And so for all of us here this morning trusting in Jesus Christ, this is the way that we ought to walk. Not in darkness, not in lying, not in deceitfulness, not in bearing false witness against our neighbors, but in actually loving the truth, not just for its own sake, but because it is God's truth. Because Jesus Christ himself is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That this is who God is. This is what God has done for us when we had nothing to do with him, when we could have no part in our own salvation. Christ came and he lived and suffered for us. That he told the truth all throughout his life. That he continues to tell the truth even now, even as he calls us to him, calls us to believe in him, calls us to obey him in gratitude. And so Christians love the truth. And Christians speak the truth. It affects what and whom 
we say things about. Because what we love really affects our actions and our thoughts and our mind. It affects our lips and our speech. It affects how we go about our lives. Those of us who have been changed by Jesus Christ, it affects how we consider the truth and how we speak the truth. And so it means we have to do sometimes some very hard things. Certainly the gospel is good news. It's a message of resting. Resting in Jesus Christ. Resting in the one who has done everything for your sake. But some of the implications of the gospel are not necessarily easy. The things that we are called to do, the ways in which we are called to live after as a result of what has been done for us can be quite difficult. We know we have the Holy Spirit. We know we've been made new. We know that we have the same Holy Spirit who, rose, who raised Jesus from the dead alive and at work within us. And that he is faithful. That he who began a good work in us in Jesus Christ will complete it. But yet in the, in the moments of life, in the day-to-day Christian life, this can be quite hard. It can mean keeping our word, even when it's difficult. Even when it's a difficult thing for us, even when it may not be for our own benefit. It might mean sacrificing for honesty's sake. Telling the truth even when those in power don't want you to. Those in authority over you don't want you to. It may mean telling the truth when something financially wrong happens, where you are given more money than you ought to receive. And going back and telling your employer or whoever it might be, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it ought to be. It might mean giving someone your word of helping them with something as small as helping to move something heavy, and you get there and you realize this is terrible. This is an awful thing to be having to do. But Christians are those who keep our word. It might mean certain things like avoiding false accusations. Of recognizing that our responsibility is to find as much of the truth as we can before we make judgments rashly. Before we judge wrongly as we rush to judgment. On the internet or in face-to-face conversations or wherever we may be, wherever we may find ourselves, it means we don't rush to judgment. It may mean a whole host of other things that we don't flatter, that we don't deceive or twist words so that we can make ourselves look better by making the person feel better across from us, but that we tell the truth. And ultimately, speaking the truth means that our neighbors need to hear the truth of their sin and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest truth that we can hear. It's the greatest truth that we can tell. We need to tell our neighbors the truth. We cannot flatter them into thinking that they're good enough, that they're doing well enough, that they've kept the commandments well enough to be entering into God's presence, even as we see in Psalm 15. But the truth is something far different. It might suggest that it means also telling ourselves the truth. Telling ourselves what God's law actually requires. How we have failed to keep it. Telling ourselves the fact that we cannot enter into God's presence on our own and reminding ourselves constantly, consistently, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Telling ourselves the truth that only in Christ do we have these wonderful benefits. And as we love the truth, As we speak the truth, we can also 
confess the truth. Notice in Psalm 15 that it begins with a question or a series of questions. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And it gives this list of requirements, these moral qualifications. And then it says at the end, he who does these things shall never be moved. It begins with questions and it ends with a promise. And we can know, brothers and sisters, that in Jesus Christ, this promise is true for us. That we are not doing these things perfectly. We will never be doing these things perfectly until we are out of this world. Until the remaining sin is done. But that in Jesus Christ, these things are true for us in him perfectly. And God the Holy Spirit is making these things true in us more and more as our Christian lives go on. And what a comfort to know that we shall never be moved. And so we ought to confess the truth. To confess the truth about God, first and foremost, of who he is and what he has done. To confess the truth of ourselves, that we on our own are sinners, but we are no longer on our own. That we have Jesus Christ for us. That we have the Holy Spirit in us. That we have God acting on our behalf. So as we consider the ninth commandment, of how it forbids things like false accusations, twisting the truth, falsifying the truth, deceiving those around us, backbiting and slandering and causing harm to come onto someone else behind their back. We can also recognize that Jesus himself perfectly obeyed this for us. That he is not only one who tells the truth, but he is the truth. And as a result of that, we can imperfectly yet sincerely begin to love the truth. Begin to speak the truth to each other and confess the truth before God and before man. The virtuous person, the person described in Psalm 15, is someone who does right with his or her hands and mouth and heart and mind. Jesus Christ through his spirit is in the work of sanctifying all these things for us. What a comfort that is to us, even as we live in the midst of a society that is awash in falseness, even as we ourselves continue to deceive, even as we struggle against sin. And so as we close, what is God calling us to do? What would the Lord have us do? What is his will for our lives that we can take away from this? Well, we are to speak like a Christian, those of us who are trusting in Christ. We are to call on Christ's name and mercy. And understand that his grace is sufficient for us. We are to speak like those who have been redeemed. We are to love the truth, to speak the truth, to confess the truth. Because that is God's will for us. The will of the Holy, Holy, Holy One who tells us the truth whether we want to hear it or not. What a comfort to know we have a Savior. And what a comfort to know that through his Holy Spirit he is still working in us. Even this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and once again confess that we have often failed to speak the truth, to love the truth, to confess the truth, but we thank you, Lord, that Christ has done these things for us, that through him we know that we can enter into your your tent to worship you, to dwell with you, to sojourn with you. We ask, Lord, that your spirit will continue to make us more and more into those who do love and speak and confess the truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.